Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Welcome back. In today's episode, we'll be sitting down with Chris O'Hara, founding principal of Studio NYL in Denver, Colorado. We will be discussing the High Park Project, located in Monterey, Mexico. This building is mostly steel frame, 10 stories above grade, and 4 stories below grade. One of the concepts that we will give some attention to is called double cantilevers. Those of you not familiar with structural design, I just want to give a little more detail or insight into this. So if you visualize a diving board at a pool, it has a cantilever that extends out over the water. So it has two connection points, one at the very back of the diving board and one right at the face of the pool. And then the board itself extends out over. So if you visualize someone standing out at the very end of that cantilever over the pool, the person standing there actually brings up the back part or the center span of the diving board. So that concept is one that creates a very efficient structural system. And it's a concept that we use very frequently in structural design. So you'll hear double cantilevers or articulated beam theory. You'll hear those two words used quite a bit in this podcast. And I just wanted to give a little visualization as to what that actually is. So moving back to the building, some of the other kind of, I guess, challenges of this building The floor depth had a 14-inch max constraint with spans between columns being 60 feet. So one of the things that Studio NYL or that Chris implemented is a multi-story or a full-story truss system. So essentially, he was using one floor depth as the top cord of a structural member and then the floor depth below as the bottom cord. So what this does is it creates a full story depth structural element instead of 14 inches. Now you have several feet for that depth, which allows the member to span much further. 
Another thing that we discuss a lot in this podcast is embodied carbon. So Chris is an expert in embodied carbon and taking that into account with his structural design. So we just kind of touched on the surface here, but I did want to talk about it a little bit before the episode just to kind of introduce the topic and give you a little more information. If you're not familiar with embodied carbon or if you're a structural engineer that has not implemented it into your design, I recommend looking into the SE 2050 document. This is something that we can do as structural engineers to be better stewards of our environment and kind of have a little bit of control regarding what type of resources are required in the buildings that we're designing. So I hope you enjoy this episode and keep coming back. Today we have Chris O'Hara with Studio NYL in Denver, Colorado. He is the founding principal. And today we're going to talk about the High Park Project, which is a 10-story building, four stories underground, 10 stories above ground, steel-framed, concrete, slab on metal deck building built in Monterey, Mexico with lots of interesting design challenges. So Chris, thank you for being with today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I guess maybe if we could just dig in a little bit and get started, when were you first introduced to this project or when were you brought in as the designer, structural designer? Pretty early. They had, they pitched it to the developer. It was, a, it was a challenging site with um, a bulk plane issue in terms of how tall the building could be and trying to maximize the capability. And it, it just had a lot of cantilevers need to be an exceptionally thin floor plate, all these things going on. So we were brought on right after they pitched it. So say the end of SD for the architect, but none of the consultants had been brought on yet. And we were, they knew it was complicated. They knew it would be something a little beyond the realm of the people they'd been working with traditionally. So they brought us in, Arup and Burl Happel to bid the project. This was early in the studio's founding. So it was probably like 2007, 2008 is when it first came in. And um, there were only four of us back then. <laughs> so uh, I, I used to have a slide when we present on this project of, you know, the size of the companies. I think like at the time Arab was like 10,000 and you know, Burr <laughs> was probably 4,000 and we were four. So uh, as you can imagine, we were probably cheaper than everybody else due to lack of overhead. And um, yeah, we ended up winning the job and We've done most of Michel Roquin's projects since then. Michel Roquin's the architect out of Mexico City. Okay. Well, and I know just from seeing the other projects that Studio NYL has done, you guys are not afraid to take on a challenge. <laughs> Complexity is kind of your forte. I know you have a passion for the architectural side of things too, but I'm curious coming at it with that background, what were your thoughts when you first saw kind of these depth constraints, site constraints, different complexities of this project? Yeah, I mean, when we first saw it, I have a partner, Julian, who's been with me from day one on this, as far as the office. And um, each of the floor plates kind of overlapped each other, overhung them in multiple directions, lack of stacking, and they wanted the structural depth to be 14 inches. Because if it was any thicker, they'd lose a floor. And if you lose a floor, the entire performance of the project starts to stop making sense from a cost to square foot standpoint. So... You, know, you first look at it, it's like, oh, I guess we're going to have a lot of columns and the space is going to be horrible. And then they tell us, oh, no, we need them to be column-free 
minimum 60 feet in like a bunch of areas. And we're like, oh, well, that proves difficult because obviously the longer the span, the deeper the structure wants to be um, from a span to depth ratio. So we started saying, I was like, well, where are the opportunities geometrically in this building? You know, it was a predominantly residential building. It was, you know, mixed use. So it's retail on the lower level, two levels, then a couple levels of office, amenity, and then the rest is all exceptionally high-end residential. And so we just start taking the partitions and seeing where we could hide columns. And of course, none of the walls stack. Uh, so we started putting trusses in them. It's like, okay, what if we do a long span truss? That's the story deep. I can't remember what the ceiling height was on a particular building. But, you know, each of the trusses were roughly 12 feet deep, 13 feet deep in that realm. And, you know, as you can imagine, from span depth ratio, you get them to go pretty far, except for the fact that, you know, you get to the end of the truss or near the ends of the trusses, the columns can't go anywhere. <laughs> they mm-hmm. don't they don't make it to the bottom. So it started to look like pickup sticks of trusses. <laughs> like you think of a kid's game and you just throw everything on the ground and just wherever they overlap, so everything is a transfer truss. And um, the idea was stolen from what we – often here is a stagger truss design where the first article I've seen on it, not that I was alive in the forties, but there's articles dating back to the forties of, you know, these deep trusses like we described, except in a rectilinear format and you span from the top cord of one truss to the bottom cord of the other with say like a hollow core plank or some other prefab element. Or in our case, we used a, a deep deck system, we used a seven inch deep corrugated composite deck to create a, a basically a nearly 14 inch thick slab to span truss to truss and that we can get to span about 30 feet so we, the trusses would be 30 feet apart but since one is on the floor below or we're landing on the top cord of one and the bottom cord of the other you get these spaces that are 60 feet wide but also 180 feet in terms of the span of the truss because the truss is so deep we don't have to support it very often and so that made it pretty easy and so you just take that rectilinear concept and start tweaking it and you see those designs like in hospitals hotels residential buildings it's really really common especially with hollow core plank so we just kind of took it and put it on steroids and started using you know the back spans of these long spans we had to create the cantilevers that were signature to the architecture as you're talking like i'm just realizing like that is where the value of a great structural engineer comes in like we make a million decisions over the design of a project but this was like very beginning phase and you made that choice to go to the full story height trust system and that was like what made the whole project successful and made it within the constraints of the architect and the owner instead of saying no you can't do that so I think that really brings the value of a great structural engineer or exemplifies the value of a great structural engineer. There's even more to it in the sense that that implies everybody trusts us, right? They say, oh, well, they're obviously doing what's right for the project and this is perfect. Let's just go do it. If any engineers meet a cost estimator, they never trust you that this is the cheapest way to do it. So we have to go through the the rigor and the due diligence because we you know, anticipate this would be the right way to go. And that's kind of where our heads went very early in the process. There was, you know, a normal concrete design, flat plate concrete. There was, you know, a typical steel and composite deck design. And you know, how do these systems come together? What are the sacrifices? What are the pros and cons? And of course, what's the weight of material? What's the cost? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you get a system that, you know, is exceptionally high detailed relative to just you know, a standard post and beam. And that costs money. But when you have a truss that's, say, 12 to 13 feet tall for whatever span it's going from a, a weight ratio to its span, it's it's actually quite cheap compared to, say, 
I had to do a bunch of beams spanning 60 feet. They're probably W30s or W36s. Those are all going to weigh, you know, somewhere in the realm of 100 pounds a linear foot minimum. So where's the cost? You know, because whereas the trusses, top cords of these trusses were like W8s, W10s, W12s. Some of them were only maybe 50 pounds a linear foot. So, yes, you have to add diagonals, things like that, but it's less material. I'd rather spend money on labor than material. And then you move it to a, place, at a country where labor is relatively cheap. It, it's e- easier to sell because material costs relative to project costs was um, very high relative to what it is in the United States. There's also two things that I see here. So weight of materials being less, making it a cheaper building to build, right? But then there's also like the embodied carbon of it. So there's less material there, less use, right? So, and then the other thing is it's a high seismic zone, right? So, so now the weight of your structure is less, which means that your lateral resisting system is going to be more efficient, correct? Absolutely. Not to mention the trusses can start to become a part of your lateral system in a sense that, you know, yes, we predominantly use the stair and elevator cores to get them to stack because those are like the only things in the entire building that stack to get the load all the way down. But when you start dealing with the eccentricities and the asymmetry of the building, the trusses help regulate that and bring them back into the cores uh, to make the diaphragms do a little bit less work. Coming back to your your comment on the carbon, because that's a huge passion of ours. Um, We are one of the, I think it was the first 10 companies to sign the uh, 2050 challenge, the SE 2050. And Can you pause for just a second and just give a brief synopsis of what that is? Basically, SE2050 is the structural engineer's response to embodied carbon challenges and the greenhouse gas emissions sustainability. Like in architecture, they call it 2030 challenge. And this is really about trying to prevent an increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius across the globe, which, you know, at least climatologists, people beyond my ability are telling us you get past this threshold, you're not coming back. The trend diagrams, we can course correct if we can keep it under 1.5. So, you know, whether it's 2030 or 2050, I mean, you're just picking a date to hit these reductions by. But the principles are basically the same. How do we reduce operational carbon? How do we reduce embodied carbon to prevent the um, global temperature change on that level? So as a result, you know, this is something that the industry needs to take into account because buildings, whether it's operation or the construction of them, it's almost like half the greenhouse gases we're dealing with. So operational carbon, most structural engineers don't deal with as much. I mean, we do because we do facade also. So we can really reduce operational carbon loads through the um, the envelope. But when you're starting to talk about primary structure, especially cement is probably the worst thing out there. So obviously cement is a pretty important ingredient in um, concrete. So it, it is ubiquitous. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I did a building without any concrete whatsoever. It's It's almost impossible to do, whether it's you have to deal with floor vibrations on a mass timber building, whether it's just your foundation because it's durable enough to be putting in the ground. There are very few things we build that don't have at least a little bit of concrete and therefore a little bit of cement. And yes, we can do supplemental cementing materials and things like that to make it better. But we got a ways to go. There's a lot of really good research. There's a, a guy right here in Boulder, not far from where I am, Will Rubar, is making some massive changes into the way we're going to be thinking about concrete. There's things like carbon cure. I could go on for hours on this, but the point is we have a responsibility. And you think of like the old recycling diagrams, like, you know, reduce, recycle, reuse. 
Mm-hmm. Well, first step is reduce. If we don't need a new building, don't build a new building. And I realize from me having a job that that's not always the easiest thing to suggest. And usually that happens more at the architectural level, obviously. And then, you know, reduce, use less material. So if we're using more efficient systems, we're doing better span to depth ratio so that we're not throwing material at a problem. Why have a big, massive girder when you can do a more efficient trust or put it more simplistic, a bar joist? Or, and then obviously recycle. And um, the recycle side, especially when you're talking about, say, steel, how you spec your steel is a big deal. If we're getting, you know, blast oxygen furnaces versus electric arc furnaces, it really changes the embodied carbon content. Fortunately for us in the United States, the vast majority of material that we produce and make in the United States are generally coming from electric arc furnaces, whereas stuff that's coming in, say, from China aren't. But even then, it's like if you have an electric arc furnace that's being fed power from a coal-fired power plant, does that really do you any good? So unfortunately, um, we have a line in our office. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So we're doing LCAs on our projects now. I can't say we were when we did High Park. We just were doing it. But it has definitely become the way in our office now. Whether our clients are asking for it or not, we're doing it and we're giving them the information and they're making their decisions with not just cost and schedule in mind, but they're making the decisions with what is the um, the carbon on the Long-term planet. impact on the planet kind of situation. Right. And so coming back to high labor versus material, labor is renewable. We got people who need jobs. <laughs> let's mm-hmm. Let's put them to work. And if we can use less material by having a more clever system, um, you see this a lot with tensile systems. I, we used to do a lot of lightweight structures. And I can save a massive amount of material by using a tensile system. But the labor and the cost and the engineering required, everything goes into it is just so intense. I remember, um, I think it was the first lead platinum convention center I did when I was still working in New York. It's a Pittsburgh Convention Center, cable-supported roof structure. And they're doing their lead scorecards, and that's great. And um, we saved 50% of the steel on the roof by going from conventional trusses like this convention center in Japan to a, ca- a suspended cable roof system. We saved 50% of the steel. It's worth one lead point. Wow. <laughs> so it's like the metrics aren't in our favor. You know, right. as engineers, you have to prove like some other engineer overdesigned it to get a lead point, which is, you know, never going to happen in the industry. So Right. Right. So what can the practicing structural engineer that maybe isn't familiar with um, embodied carbon and not used to implementing that into their design, what they, what can they do or what can they be cognizant of in the beginning phases of a design to help <laughs> move towards carbon neutral? Well, outside of Googling SE 2050 and a couple of things like that, less material is, al- is always is the, the first way to go. Limiting the amount of cement on the project, whether that be through your mixed designs to try to minimize it or designing systems that use less, you know, not going with, say, the flat plate concrete structure, maybe going post-tensioned, although I'm not necessarily always a huge fan of post-tensioning. But um, what are the ways we can reduce the material? That's step number one. You know, different uh, deck assemblies, things like, like that mm-hmm. can start to really feed into it. Timber structures, obviously. Uh, mass timber is the buzzword of the moment. There are also very many different versions of mass timber. Like you know, everybody thinks CLT, CLT, CLT. But many times, one, it's hard to procure sometimes, but tongue and groove deck can get us in the same spot. You know, there's different ways of doing heavy timber structures. Um, I must admit, I'm a massive fan of CLT and we've done a number of CLT projects, but maybe nail laminated timber or dowel laminated timber makes sense. I and mean, there's pros and cons of them. Like, 
I shouldn't have said the nail because every, every uh, everybody's ever had to drill a hole in a mass timber plank hates the nails because <laughs> their core drill ends up hitting a bunch of nails they go through. So that's where the dowels are nicer. But the point is there's different ways of doing mass timber and getting educated on that and doing the due diligence of options. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can intuitively infer are going to be less carbon or better and more efficient. I mean, you know, our guts are usually reasonably good if we've been doing this long enough, but comes back to if you don't measure you can't manage it you know if do the analysis do the even if it's just a typical base set you don't have to redesign the whole building over and over like um we have a project where we're looking at different versions of mass timber floor so we have a three ply and a five ply clt then we're comparing it to slab on metal deck and going through the different options of whether it's glue lamp supported versus a hybrid steel mass timber doing those studies early in in the process helping inform the decision so that We've gone through the rigor. We've gone through the effort. And that when we get into DD, we're comfortable with the decisions we've made. We're not making these drastic moves during DD to value engineer a project because we've already studied it. We already know why that's different because you know, we're sitting there trying to reduce carbon. But if you forget about costs and schedule, it'll just go out the window. And we'll lose the arguments. You always have to be taking all the parameters into the conversation and weighing them as appropriate. Because if I can't prove it's cheaper, I'm not going to get the low carbon structure. Yeah, yeah, or so true. At least cost similar. I'm not even going to say cost neutral. I'm going to say cost similar. Cost similar. <laughs> so, you know, lightening the structure, one thing that you did on the High Park project is this use of double cantilevers. So can we maybe talk about that a little bit and how you use the concept of, you know, having that cantilever to uh, reduce the deflection in the mid-span of the main span to kind of reduce the weight, the overall weight of the structure, correct? Absolutely. And we use this all the time. That's kind of, we I kind of jokingly refer to it as like the big box school of design. You know, you think of big box retail of these, you know, double cantilever beams going over the columns to support their roofs. And they don't do it because it's cool. Like, like Cabousier have these like wonderfully articulated cantilevers and tapers. And you look at like San Francisco's main terminal at the airport where it's got these lenticular trusses cantilevering beyond the columns and then this delicate little truss between them. And they're you know really expressive of what the bending moments in the structure are doing. But when you see it in the big box retail, they're doing it because it's cheaper. They're, they're not doing it because it's cool. And that kind of mentality of when you think of like the bending diagram of a simple span beam, it's got the max bending in the middle. Well, when you start adding cantilevers, you're effectively changing that diagram by moving the columns in. So that whole curve just goes up. So the point that's usually the zero moment at the columns in the pin condition start to become this negative moment hogging over the column. And the AIC book, because back as early as I've been designing buildings, has these really quick cheat sheet charts of you know, telling you what the optimal cantilevers are for various column spacing, like just a formula to figure that out mm-hmm. and how to get the you know, obviously the shear bending and deflection curves off of that. And you're, you're saving steel by doing that. It's just, mm-hmm. it, it's not just done because it's cool. Like a lot of pe- architects think, oh, well, I got to cut these cantilevers down because they're more expensive. Like, no, let's optimize the cantilever. Let's figure out what the right cantilever is and then let that govern our steel and make it a little bit more efficient. You know, we run into this all the time with architects where, They've made compromises before we get involved. That's that's why it stinks when we get to a project too late. We want to be in there as early as possible, right? So we mm-hmm. can help inform the decisions. And as an engineer, if we ask them, like, well, what, what did this want to be before you started thinking, oh, this is too expensive or this is too that? Tell me what ideal was. Because oftentimes we can get closer to that 
than they think we can because we're actually going to put math on it. We're actually going to use our experience of knowing when, you know, a cantilever is right or how to tessellate and lay out a structure for efficiency, you know, things like um, lamellas and recumbent beam systems to try to create some of these moves that architects want to make. Mm-hmm. Whereas the cantilever is just simple. You know, it's so easy to use properly. And you think about like a concrete building, concrete doesn't know if you don't want it to be a moment connection. It's just a moment connection. It's, right. you know, it's fluid when you pour it and then it's solid, right? So whether you want it or not, it's there. And you almost every building we do that's flat plate concrete, we insist on a minimum amount of cantilever on the perimeter because we run into punching challenges. We get different moment conditions. We start bending the columns in a way we don't want to. Whereas if we can try to balance it a little bit more with the dead load, I mean, the live load is still going to be unbalanced, but it just becomes more efficient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, then that helps out the other side of uh, Studio NYL with the facade design, right? Giving it, giving it a little more <laughs> clear opening. <laughs> yeah, might as well like do both, right? Yeah, who's one to pitch the other? <laughs> one thing I love, like as you're talking, so there's two simple concepts. So from the 40s, you know, something that you had seen where it's a full story trust system, simple concept doing the articulated beam theory or doing the double cantilevers, another simple concept that we've all been told how to do. But you took that and you made something very unique, very complex, very original, but use those kind of primary concepts all throughout the building structure. Yeah. It's kid of parts mentality. It's like, you know, building with Ikea stuff. You know, it's like just figure out simple systems and then arrange them in a unique way. And then, um, Part of the challenge we run into is trying to convince people it's as simple as I think it is. So it turns into a lot of diagrams and you know, explaining the why of it in like pre-bed meetings. We, um, we use a similar concept for um, a wellness center that is nearly complete in Lima, Peru. So once again, more high seismic just to make life more interesting. But it's these different core volumes of program. And then everything else are these just these massive bridge-like elements where the trusses are 30 feet tall. And, you know, we're spanning 250, 300 feet to link the buildings. Um, it's rather unique, interesting structure, but it's the same concept. If the structure is deep enough, it can span. It just becomes more and more efficient the deeper and deeper it gets. Sure. So one thing I want to ask about the High Park project. So you had mentioned earlier that the columns don't necessarily stack. So you kind of had the pickup stick situation where things are kind of dropping down, transferring out all over the place. How was that leap from these more basic theory type of design to that big, complex things not stacking? How was that? And how did you guys kind of make that leap? But we showed them what it would be if we dropped columns everywhere we needed them. That was interesting because even with dropping columns, we still had massive cantilevers that were not the good kind, right? We're talking about the good kind that are balanced well with the backspan. We're talking about ones that just started to get ludicrous because what you don't realize in the building is what looks like maybe a 10 to 12 foot cantilever of how level 10 extends over level 9. You don't realize is level 9 extends about 20 feet beyond level 2. <laughs> So like all these things are moving in and out. Um, so we we demonstrated that and then we walked them through the concept. Instead of just saying, here's a Revit model with all these crazy trusses, we started the process of, okay, here are the walls we want to use. And like I just very simply turned them blue or red in Revit and to, just to show how they would stack. And here's how they overlap. So these are the opportunities to get the load to the ground. And then they're like, 
well, if those are solid structure, how do we walk from room to room? It's like, well, the trusses are this deep. Here's where we put the diagonals, and this is where you've located your doors, and see how the door fits between the diagonal. It's this baby steps to the final concept of just trying to get the people who aren't thinking like geek engineers like me on board with the idea and trying to show where the efficiencies are, how it could work. And then the other thing I'd like to do is show the architect how to bend and maybe even break occasionally the rules, right? Because they'll look at what we've come up with and like, yeah, it's really clever, but these five things don't work for me. Mm -hmm. If I don't explain to them how to manipulate the rules for the things they haven't articulated to us yet, then a system could be thrown by the wayside. But we're doing that with every option we come up with. And so that kind of process is a big thing. It's like, you know, for example, we were earmarking walls in their design that we want to use. And like, oh, yeah, well, we, we, we just got rid of that wall. <laughs> Stuff like that happens. And that's, you know, part of the design process. I think you just kind of led us into the next thing that I wanted to ask, which would be the lateral system of building. So you're talking about walls uh, being there and then maybe not being there. Uh, maybe that's for vertical support. But what is the lateral system of the building and kind of how did that all come to be? Yeah, there is pr- predominantly brace frames around the cores. So there is a primary elevator core that went up all 10 stories. And I kind of alluded to the bulk plane of the site. So the building's 10 stories on um, I'm going to call it the left side for now. Mm -hmm. And then each story starts to step down as you get to the right to where I think, um, I think it was the minimum was four stories above grade. And then it's obviously as you start, the building starts getting wider and wider as you get closer to the ground, there's other cores and things like that that come into play. And so what ends up happening is the building had an exceptional amount of asymmetry. And so on some levels, we're actually using the trusses that are predominantly part of the gravity system to act as brace frames to help regulate out some of the asymmetry that eventually turn into, you know, stacking brace frames that are conventional. On the upper levels where we're on the edge of the building, they definitely are constantly changing geometry. But eventually, as you start getting into more of the back of house spaces around the retail and the office, the lower portions of the building, it was a little bit easier. And then once once we got to grade, we just went straight concrete shear cores to the bottom of the building until we're able to get the load transferred into the soil around it or coming out of the soil really into the building of you know where we can define the true base of the building versus what grade is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So were there any, I know you said earlier that it's a high seismic zone. Were there any unexpected challenges that came up with the lateral design as you move through? Geometry. Um, okay. So there's obviously the asymmetry I bring up. And then, of course, anytime you're trying to use cores as homes for brace frames, elevator doors, stair doors, where the vertical circulation needs to get in and out of these cores is often problematic. So that was definitely an issue. Monterey, fortunately, has reasonably decent soil compared to other parts of, like, let's say, working in Mexico City. So it was a little bit more intuitive where other like Mexico City's, you know, was it 8,000 vertical feet above sea level in a swamp, basically. Mm-hmm. That's where the Aztecs settled to protect themselves from people invading. So you put 25 million people there and all of a sudden that swamp has all the water sucked out of it. So you're on like an 80 foot deep bowl of jello um, <laughs> in a high seismic zone. So this wasn't as bad as that. Mexico is usually a little bit more challenging depending on where we are uh, within the country. Diaphragms are always tough because there's no simple rectangular diaphragms on this building. <laughs> Everything sure. is amorphously shaped. Yes. It's a very organic finished product, I feel like. 
Yeah. Lots of curves. Well, yeah, and the other thing, I guess, from a diaphragm standpoint that was challenging is to try to get our 14-inch deep deck system, that 7-inch VersaDeck, was basically bearing on the bottom flange of a lot of these trusses or a plate coming off of it. So the steel of the truss is actually in the depth of the slab. So as you're trying to get the diaphragm across the truss, that's uh, that was a lot of detailing as well, just to make sure we're getting the boundary elements of these diaphragms, which of course, once again, are not rectangular. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> a lot of drilling of holes just to get rebar to be continuous through, or using sometimes you just had anchor studs. There were just different methodologies depending on how complex the connections we're trying to get past were. That's super fascinating. So like you were talking earlier about concrete, it's continuous, therefore it is a moment connection. It's continuous when the concrete is continuous, but you were breaking every one of those probably yeah. to, to fit that height restraints with the truss going through it. Yeah, we basically put a zipper through it, right? <laughs> so, um, with some very strong teeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the teeth were the problem, figuring out how to make the teeth work. <laughs> How did that work with the mechanical system? Like, how did they, with that, I know, super shallow constraint? It was really more about vertical circulation. They started trying to hide the mechanical over, like, restrooms and things that could muster a shallower ceiling. Um, But um, it was challenging. And, you know, it's climate-wise, Monterey, Mexico is pretty far north in Mexico. Not terribly high. It's not nearly as high as Mexico City. So, like... It's a little bit hotter than Mexico City. Like Mexico City is like 70 degrees every day, day or night, it feels like. It's, okay. it's like idyllic temperature. You don't have to do much. Whereas Monterey, it's a little bit hotter. So there's definitely a significant cooling need in the building. But you know, with these 14-inch deep slab on metal deck systems, I mean, we had a lot of mass in the building. And compared to a lot of our buildings, the window-to-wall ratio is actually – really opaque so they didn't get a lot of solar heat gain in the building and even then it was a stone facade on it so they had a lot of thermal mass there too so it's it's really not too hard for the mechanicals i understand it to regulate the temperature is really more of how small can the ducts be how do we snake them through where are the ceilings relative and they ended up hugging the trusses they tried to get a lot of the back of i'm gonna call it back of house of the the units up against the trusses as much as they could and then centered the more living space, the place that had to have the more grand ceilings away from that. There was not a lot of perimeter cooling like you'd see in the United States, just because um, they were trying to keep the ceilings as high as possible when you were adjacent to the windows or adjacent to the terraces. So um, I can't speak to how efficient their mechanical system was. That was... I had enough problems. <laughs> That's all I was wondering about. That's all I was wondering about is from a structural. <laughs> I was just wondering from a structural perspective and just getting the duct work through essentially. So, Well, in some ways it was great because I didn't have to worry about people trying to penetrate my beams because there's nowhere to penetrate. There's just slab on metal deck everywhere. So we had a little bit of conduit that went through where uh, the corrugations laid out for the deck. They'd try to hide that up in, in there, but... Yeah, there weren't a lot of duct penetrations in structure, which was really kind of nice. Yeah. <laughs> we went through the trusses. So one thing um, I want to talk about a little bit. So a lot of times I personally describe structural engineering as the bones of the building and then architecture as the skin of the building. But as Studio NYL, you guys actually get into the structural design of the skin as well. And you were involved with both parts of this project. So how does that work? Do you have a separate team that is doing the overall building structural design and then another team doing the facade design? Or what is that interaction and how does that work together? Yeah, so we, we 
we refer to our facade design group as the skins group. Mm-hmm. And it's actually more a lot more than just structure. It's actually the structure is the pretty modest part as far as what we do on the facade, even though some of them are a little crazy in terms of what we come up with to try to keep things slender and transparent on the glazing systems or some of the geometry we're asked to do structurally. But we're actually doing the thermal. So thermal bridging is a big thing. We lecture on that quite a bit and have helped modify some of the existing technologies to be better as far as lack of thermal conductivity. We use a lot of fiber-reinforced polymer around the perimeter of our buildings that we design structurally, integrated with the design. And then hydrothermal, which is uh, condensation analysis, moisture movement, and then, of course, you know, waterproofing and everything that goes with it. And um, we, we integrate that holistically into what we do structurally. So there are... I tend to straddle both sides of the studio where most of the projects that we do that are doing both structure and facade, I'm personally involved in. Will Babington, who's our facade design director, he's both a licensed architect and a licensed engineer. So it's it's kind of integral in the way we think. And we train the team to be thinking about thermal bridging and ask the questions about how the envelope is meant to integrate with the structure and try to find synergies of rather than having like a winger 12 inches below your slab, how do we redesign the system to be just a little more intelligent than that? Because oftentimes they're they're completely divorced from each other and they're mm-hmm. they're not talking. And you think about as we try to make our envelopes more thermally efficient, especially like in a residential construction, like the project we just mentioned, the indoor outdoor transitions of walking onto a terrace. How do you thermally break that? And then when you can't afford the really cool halfen or shuck details for, like, say, a flat plate concrete with a terrace, how do we minimize it? Like, one of the things we've done a lot is, like, say, a flat plate concrete, you think of, you know, column strips and beam strips. Now, granted, with the new software, I don't know if people think that way anymore, but I'm old, so I still think that way. Uh, we start to eliminate slab, like almost creating a slot that looks like a trench drain in the concrete and fill it with insulation and just have the column strips come out. And now we're only trying to manage the thermal bridge at the column strips, which we can do through a number of different ways, like insulating a little bit inboard and outboard of the building to try to create a thermal lag. So depending on the climate, there's just a lot of different tricks we can do without spending a heck of a lot of money on technology that is available and awesome, but it's it's not regular enough. It's not something that we realistically get on projects. And if I can't make it work economically, I can't build it. Uh, one of the lines in the office uh, that we use a lot is uh, renderings don't count. So <laughs> if we can't figure out how to get it built, whether that be just structural gymnastics or things of that nature or cost, efficiency, things like that, then kind of failed. Maybe that's too negative. But the point is we, we find pride and success in the buildings we get built. Um and if we do our job right, we can make buildings with all the visions, all the aspirations that the building had happen. Mm-hmm. So one thing I'm thinking as you, about as you're talking is the high park project. So cantilevers were important. You have these balconies that are cantilevering out. That means you have to have a backspan that goes into the building. So right there, you have to have that member continuous, but you also have to have the thermal break. So what a value to understand that whole concept of that building interface. Well, that one's a little bit easier because, and harder simultaneously, I guess, is that we don't really have cantilevered balconies. We have cantilevered volumes that the terrace is actually the roof of the space below. Now, granted, that space below might not have anything underneath it, in which case it turns directly into a soffit. But you actually brought up one of the things that's actually really challenging about the project is we've got this 14-inch slab and it's integral with the trusses and everything times out perfectly indoors. What happens when we go outside? We usually want six to eight inches of transition 
for our waterproofing membranes. We want uh, thermal insulation over our roofs. That's usually helpful. You know, things like that. And now all of a sudden, I took this 14 inches and I took eight inches away. So how do we how do we manage that? So those ended up going to more conventional, like three inch metal deck with slab over it, normal weight concrete, nothing like say six and a half inches thick. And then the beams actually end up being once again, bottom of deck is set on bottom flange of beam or a plate coming off the bottom flange. And we actually end up having these like kind of ribs coming up above the slab that we're now waterproofing over and trying to insulate over and manage thermally. Now, granted, it is a little bit cheating in Monterey. The temperatures are pretty good. <laughs> like we're not dealing with a lot of condensation potential because it's going to be like X degrees below freezing one night and we're heating the space inside. But it is definitely something that our guiding principles of how we work. So mm-hmm. we're bringing that in, into the design and we're making somebody actively say, no, I wanted to lose thermal energy through this detail. And that was actually the hardest part of the building. Once we came up with a concept during like SDE like, and figured it all out, then it was just like moving moving deck chairs around until we got it right and figuring out the geometry where we could compromise with a column, where we couldn't. But those transitions were way harder because <laughs> eight inches is not a lot to work with. <laughs> no. And to still have that be continuous through there because it's cantilevering out. Super fascinating. So what would you say is the most fascinating part of the High Park project? When you're standing at the point of the 10th story looking up, just all you see is these like curved nodes of cantilever coming off in like every direction. None of them stack. And you just look up and the building looks like slender, like the flat iron building, except somebody started to stretch each floor in a different direction. And it's, it's completely insane. It, it was the first collaboration we did with Michel Rokind and, and uh, he's, he's a wonderful architect to work with. Super nice. He really knows how to use his teams in the sense that. There, there's no bad ideas. Everybody comes to the table and, you know, some architects maybe have a negative ego sometimes, but he's just wonderful to work with. And, um, you know, some of the ideas we had on that building showed up on buildings eight, nine years later because it was just a good idea. It just didn't make sense here. And that, that, that collaboration with him and that process was really quite phenomenal. And um, that building helped launch us as a firm. Obviously, I said we were only four of us at the time. That building and another building we were doing also with double cantilevers going on simultaneously. We did it with a architect called Bolesowski Jackson here in Colorado. Those two buildings were getting finished right around the same time. And there's another one that we ended up doing with Michelle that got built outrageously fast. All of these were opening and then it just kind of launched our firm to a new level. It's like the stuff that we've been founding the firm out of just better design leads to better buildings regardless of budget, et cetera that message really started to come through with these showy projects that we could then translate to like low income housing, K to 12 schools and say, look, same amount of design and effort and rigor, more modest looking, but we, this building's net zero. This one has these incredible spaces that you would not normally be able to get on like a hundred dollar a square foot budget. Like one of the best designs we did in the grant was a long time ago. So we can never get it now uh, for this number, but it was like $85 a square foot for a K to 12 school, like 12, 13 years ago. And wow. it's still one of the nicest schools we ever designed. It's gorgeous inside. But it's all optimization of every product that went in there, whether it's structure, cladding, you name it. Optimization of cantilevers again. We have these little fold-outs that were basically bar joist top cord extensions to make happen. It's as dumb and low-tech as we can make it. <laughs> but efficient. <laughs> yeah. I love how you say that the most fascinating part of this project was standing and looking up because I am looking at a picture right now that is from that vantage point. And to me, it almost looks like a flower, like with petals coming up. 
like an overlapping, but in a very like irregular pattern. It is, it's, it's art. Like it looks like a piece of art. So it's awesome. So if you were to give this project a theme song, what would the theme song be? God, in respect to Michelle, I feel like it should be an 80s band. Um, <laughs> I didn't mention that part. Michelle's literally a rock star in Mexico. Um, he was okay. a drummer, like a pop band. So he's like, you walk down the street with him, he's like famous. He's, he's so he's that and an architect? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, he's the whole reason we even ended up on social media as a company. It's just so I can know where Michelle was. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, theme song. Go with your heart. Go with your heart. I'm more of a punk rock guy. Um <laughs> I don't know. Should I stay or should I go clash? I kind of do 80s and uh, 80s and punk simultaneously. Gotcha. That's awesome. And you decided to stay and finish the project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. Um, okay. This is a question I ask everyone because I have a running tally, but are you right-handed or left-handed? Right. Okay. So that's one more for the right. I've had quite a few left. So I'm left and I have this theory that engineers are – more prone to be left-handed than the general public. <laughs> okay. How's the tally go? Uh, it's about 50-50 right now, actually. I think I've had three wow. left-handed. So that's a lot. I think it's like maybe 10% in the general population. So maybe. So it's pretty high for engineers. Your theory might be right. Yeah. I don't know. Or maybe I just have a tendency to only be friends with people that are like me. <laughs> And are left-handed. No. Um, okay. So what do you do for fun? Like, how do you recharge? What are some of the fun things that you do? Most of it definitely revolves around my, around my kids at this point. So lots of children's sports, baseball and soccer predominantly. Um, skiing, which is why I ended up in Colorado, or a big portion of why. Camping, being outside. I mean, we live in Colorado. Yeah. So outside is amazing here. It's like no humidity. We got... I could literally walk outside and see a mountain. <laughs> so it's fantastic. That is awesome. Yes, that is a great resource to have. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining today. This has been very invigorating. Lots of great information shared. So I really appreciate you being on today and sharing all of your expertise. Well, thank you. It's good fun. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris 
Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh I'm connected to these people like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome, and I think it's it's so real to this day. I I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.